There are no returns on this gift. Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. You know, it happens. We scratch the Christmas present, getting it out of the wrapping. Then we drop it. Then we put the batteries in the wrong way. And now it's broken. We'll need to send it back. We tend to think of God's gift of salvation that way. We believe there's something we should do or shouldn't have done for this present to work correctly. As we dive back into our Hebrews series, Jim will assure us that this is a very different kind of gift. Would you turn, please, with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And look with me, please, at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, begins with an operative word. Hebrews 9, 11. Now, now, the author is shifting gears. He's been talking about a system of worship which centered in the temple in Jerusalem with the high priest and the various priestly offerings and gifts. But now, 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 under that system, he has reminded us the Holy Spirit was dramatically illustrating that the worshiper couldn't go into the holy place where God was. Only the priest could enter the outward part, the first part of that duplex, that two-compartment temple system. Only priests were allowed in there. And then behind the veil was a second part where only the high priest could enter, and he could only go in one day a year, and he had to go in twice. And the writer has said that that was intended to teach a lesson. The Spirit of God himself was teaching that the way into the very presence of God was blocked. It was restricted. You couldn't go there. Even the high priest could only go there on one day. And God told his people, the Jewish people, the ones who operated, functioned, and lived within that system. He told them through the prophet back in the Old Testament, I'm going to change this system because this system is not producing what I desire. I want to be in the midst of my people. I want to live with them. I want to live within the confines, within the provisions of my blessing and power. And the temple with the priests and sacrifices didn't cut it. That system has been described by the author, and now, with that word, now, he's going to change gears. Chapter 9, verse 11. Now, the Messiah has appeared. Ah, a new day, a new beginning. And the one they're talking about here is Jesus, very clear, It's Jesus they're talking about, and they're describing him as the Messiah, which means the anointed one. Let's read. Now the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the Holy of Holies once for all not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal 
redemption. We could pull up a cup of coffee here and probably discuss, debate, look into these verses for hours and hours. It's compact. The author isn't stopping here. He's making a point in order to move on to other things he wants to teach us. But let's not race through that paragraph or that half paragraph without notice on some very, very basic things. Messiah has appeared. Where? Well, he's appeared in heaven itself. Not over there in the physical Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem. No, no, no. The Messiah, Jesus, has appeared in heaven itself. The book begins with that. It tells us that Jesus, after he had done what he needed to do, sat down at the right hand of the Father on his throne. That's where Jesus is. Now watch. He has appeared there, and he appears as high priest of good things that have come. Not things that are yet possible, not things that might happen. He sits down as one who has secured lots and lots and lots and lots of good things, great stuff. If I could, without demeaning, if I could have you think back for an illustration, Jesus, I know I'm going to get shot down for this, but Jesus is not a Santa Claus who appears on the roof with an empty sack. Jesus went up the chimney with a full sack. He already has the gifts, the good things, ready to distribute. It's so important that we see that, that as the high priest, he represents a whole new system of approaching God, and what does he have in his... He has good things, and those good things are available right now. They're all ready to be distributed. That's what the author is telling us. Good things that have come. Now, he's in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So, the place where Jesus ministers is outside the creation. It's not talking about the temple over there on Mount Moriah. It's not talking about your physical body, although there are places in Scripture where it does say that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what this verse is about. This verse is about Jesus ascending far above all principalities and powers, far above all the created manifestations of God's creative order, up there where it's the ether of God and God only. That's what that's saying. He is in the raw, pure, undiluted, presence of the God who created all things. He's no longer contained within. He's no longer restricted to any aspect of created things. He's in heaven itself. He has gone beyond all that is created. He's gone as high as there is to go. That's what the text is telling us. 
And you'll notice that in his presence there, he entered the Holy of Holies, the ultimate place of God's manifest holiness, the ultimate place where sin has not defiled. He's entered into the very presence of God, and you notice he did it once for all. That means he's not going to have to do that a second time. His one entrance into that manifest presence of God, the ultimate holy of holies, where God himself dwells in undisputed, undisturbed perfection and holiness. Jesus entered there once, and he's there forever. Beyond any possibility of defeat, frustration, He's there once he entered, and that's for all, forever and ever and ever. Notice the next phrase, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. The key to his entrance to that place was his own blood. Now, in the scripture, the blood is the seat of, the source of human life, so that when when an animal was sacrificed, its blood was poured out, that meant that animal was losing its life. The physical manifestation of that animal bleeding was that animal dying, surrendering its life. And it tells us here that his entrance into the supreme holy of holies was based upon the value of his own blood. Now, God, as God, doesn't have any blood. You know that, don't you? God is spirit. So this has got to be talking about Jesus, who is God the Son, who left that realm, took a human body, humbled himself, and lived under the restraints and the limitations of human experience. As a human, just like you and me, life was sustained by his blood. And he did something with his blood. Look, by his own blood, he obtained eternal redemption. Eternal, not temporal, not probationary. Not, not redemption that comes and goes based upon your behavior. Eternal redemption. What this is telling us is that God in human flesh gave his life, spilled his blood, offered his life in the act of spilling his blood. He gave his life for you and me. Now, God... God is God, can't die. God is the essence of life. And for God to experience death, God had to become human. And then as human, he had to be willing to take your sin and my sin upon himself and become our substitute. He was made sin for us, he who knew no sin. He took our sin 
and became our substitute. And in doing so, through the shedding of his blood, he obtained eternal redemption. Redemption means purchase back. It means paying the price in order to set someone free. It means meeting the demand, meeting the cost, so that a person can be delivered from. That's what redemption means. So this passage tells us that Jesus Christ is in the business now of distributing, giving eternal redemption that has been paid for, not by you or me, not on our tab, but by his own life. He died. He now has risen from the grave. He has ascended to the very presence of the Father, where he is now acting as our high priest, our representative. Let's go on. If the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? That may be the most profound description of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ you'll find anywhere in Scripture. It tells us that in this shedding his blood, in this becoming human and taking our place and dying in our place, God the Son was involved, yes, so was God the Father, and so was God the Son. The whole Trinity is involved in your redemption. The Father is involved, the Son is involved, the Holy Spirit is involved. It's a Trinitarian activity, and each played a vital role. Each had a necessary part to play and continued to play. So if you want something to stimulate your best thinking, come back to this verse sometime and think that through. How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now note, the sacrifice was not made to satisfy the devil. It was not made to placate the devil and pay the devil back some kind of a ransom. The sacrifice was made to God, for God, by God. Devil had nothing to do with it. It's a profound concept. Sometimes the impression is given, you've heard it, I've heard it, in messages and books and articles that, that Jesus is the friend of sinners. You know, he really empathizes, you know. And he's kind of our buddy and he's human and, and when we sin, he, he feels bad. But the Father is the mean old bully. He's the high and holy one. And that the Holy Spirit really didn't want to get his hands dirty. Nothing could be farther from the truth. My sin against God was a sin against God the Son. 
as much as it was a sin against God the Father and God the Spirit. And the whole triune God is involved in functioning and participating in that grand, incredible act of redemption. Uh, releasing me from Satan's bondage would be a difficult task up to, say, the level of one. Delivering me from my sin curse, that's a task on the order of about 50,000. You're your own problem. You know that, don't you? Don't go blaming the devil. And my biggest problem today is not what the devil makes me do. It's how I act out my own selfishness, my own greed, my own impatience, and all those other manifestations of sin. In order to deliver me, to redeem me from myself, to deliver me from my sin, to deliver me from my fallenness, to break the bondage of sin and death, Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit had to team up to get her done. And they did. And because of what they did, now this eternal redemption has been obtained. It, there's, there's, there's nothing you can do to add to it. Nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing you can do to help the process. It's receive it or perish. Receive it. Open your heart, and through trusting God to do for you what he's promised, trusting God to enact for you all the benefits, the good things that now are available to you and me because of what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did in this incredible act of redemption. See that? It's free. It's yours. It's a gift of grace. And nothing that you do is going to add to it or make you more deserving of it or disqualify you from the full benefit. Isn't that wonderful? Listen to what else the writer tells us. This is all designed, designed to cleanse our consciences from dead works. What's that mean? That means, that means that we in our selfish pride still think we can do something to add to what God says is finished. And many of us, many, many of, us as believers, we, we, we never experience the deliverance God intends because we're trying so hard to work it out. I shouldn't have said work it out because we're supposed to work it out. We're trying to work it up. That's the problem. We are so focused upon what we think we've got to do. We're so focused upon doing something to gain, to earn, to merit forgiveness, to earn favor with God that, that we ignore that it's already earned. It's already paid for. It's yours for the receiving. 
And what does it affect? It affects conscience. To cleanse my conscience of dead works. That means that I now need to understand that through what the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did in and through and with his work of redemption through Christ on the cross and the Spirit of God coming and the resurrection, all of that together, what God did can't be further perfected. And since he did it, when he applies it to me, I am forgiven. I am cleansed. Not only does God take away my sins and my guilt, he gives me his righteousness. Think of that. Now, what should my response be? I should be responding by serving the living God. Let me ask you a question. Um, what evidence do you have from your life since last Monday night that the God you serve is really alive? And don't brush that aside. Is the God that you serve really alive? Really living? Right now? Yes. Does he know everything about you? Does he actually control the whole world? The hair of your head, the falling of a sparrow? Does he really manage all of that? Is that God truly working orchestrating all things together for good? Has yes. he got control of Satan? Does he have control of the demons? Does he have control of the administration? Does he have control of, really? Does he really know what I said? Does he know what I thought? Yes. 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 See, sometimes we, we look forward to the future, and we look back to the past, and we forget that right now that God is active. Right now. He is active. We sang about the blessings. The hymn writer reminds us the blessings in our life today. The sun, moon, stars, friends, family, uh, grace, blessings, good food. God gives those things to us because He's alive and He cares. The perfect and eternally sufficient sacrifice of Jesus is something you can't mess up. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, See then, dear friend, that the weakness of your faith will not destroy you. A trembling hand may receive a golden gift. All of us, Jim included, have had our battles with what we call assurance of salvation. And this section of the book of Hebrews is very good for helping us with that. The sermon is called, Jesus Paid It All. If you'd like to get the message on CD, we'll send that out for a gift of $7 or more. For an offering of $66 or more, we'll send you the collection called God's Ultimatum Volume 1. That's 19 CDs in all. Here on the threshold of a new year, we sense an opportunity. It's a chance to catch our breath and maybe recalibrate a little bit. At right start, it's a time to check the books. If you can help with a gift now, we'd appreciate it even more than usual if that's possible. And please keep praying. The Lord is answering. You can donate on the website, and it's loaded with ways you can dig deeper into many Bible topics. You can play right start radio programs there, hear Jim's sermons without the interruptions for broadcast timing, find links to follow the podcast, email us, and more. 
The address is rightstartradio.org. Or call us at 1-800-984-2313. That's 800-984-2313. Write to us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437, Worthington, Ohio, 43085, USA. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dan Pope. We talk about the will of God, but maybe not with reference to a written will as in his last will and testament. God has one, you know. Please join us for Wednesday's Right Start.